we live in a world of risks and the careers of tomorrow depend on understanding those risks and shifting them onto others. We here at the LeMay University School of Governance appreciate this. And our master's degree in conflict development is designed to give future leaders the tools to create crises around the world. A rigorous two-year program that costs only $900,000, students who study conflict development at LeMay benefit from the decades of experience our professors gained in various prestigious organizations, from the Guantanamo Bay detention camp in sunny Cuba to Abu Ghraib prison in the even sunnier Iraq. Learn how to build links with underground movements and the top officials of some of the world's most oppressive regimes. Connect people on the ground with the drugs and intelligence they need to topple antagonistic anti-American governments. In the Conflict Development Program, you'll also discover how to leverage conflict obstacles into conflict opportunities. You'll master the ability of taking others' futures into your own hands, whether they like it or not. Now accepting Bitcoin. That's kind of conversation between the soul. That's conversation between the soul and the everyone and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. Uh, I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my co-host and friend Derek Davison. Uh, before we get going, uh, I wanted to thank LeMay University for being our first paid sponsor. We really appreciate it here on American Prestige. We really couldn't do it without them and all of your wonderful support. Uh, so just wanted to really say thank you uh, to, to everyone there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so why don't we Shit, get started? <laughs> no, it's okay. Let's leave, leave it in, Jake. Uh, why don't we get started uh, with what's going on in Afghanistan? Uh, there was recently a bombing at the airport. Um, there's been some statements from the American government about what American citizens should do. So what's going on there, Derek? Uh, yeah, this is like breaking news, basically, which... Um we're doing in the worst possible format to discuss breaking news, but uh, <laughs> there were at least uh, two explosions uh, at or around Kabul airport uh, this morning, Thursday, August 26th, I guess this morning, you know, us time. Uh, the details are still unclear. At least one of them seems to have been a suicide bombing. Uh, the Taliban is saying that, uh, 13 people were killed. That number may go up. Um, but this is consistent with uh, warnings that the State Department issued uh, on Wednesday, basically telling any U.S. citizens still in Afghanistan who might be trying to get to the airport not to go to the airport. They were citing uh, potential threats, in particular from the Islamic States, Afghanistan, Pakistan, branch which is likely uh the the perpetrator here uh so yeah that that's i mean that's as far as i can tell that's all that's known at this point about the uh, about the attack 
What does that suggest about what's going on? Obviously, this is all developing, and everything we can and say, uh, we can and do say, might not necessarily be accurate in a few days. But given what we know now, what does this suggest? Is this suggest that the Taliban is being more uh, aggressive, or at least allowing certain franchises of the Islamic State to be more aggressive? Does this not indicate anything? It could be just a random event. What does it say? What does it mean that the State yeah, Department? I mean, Islamic State Khorasan, which is the the appellation that they've adopted for themselves are ISK. Um, and the Taliban have been at war with one another. And, and ISK has uh, really struggled to gain a foothold in Afghanistan to a large extent because of the Taliban, you know, more so than because of the Afghan government, the former Afghan government and the, the U.S. occupation. Uh, but they're, I mean, they're definitely rivals. Uh, this is a moment for ISK to kind of um, grasp, you know, go for the brass ring in a sense from from a terrorism and resistance perspective, because they're going to be transitioning into, uh, you know, fight instead of fighting a two front war, basically against the government and the Taliban, they're going to be fighting against the Taliban um, as the government. So this is this is sort of a, a signature kind of dramatic strike for them to make the the airport presented has been presenting a very uh, appealing target with large crowds of people and right. and somewhat soft statement. target yeah right it's a soft target it's it's an attack to kind of uh, thumb your nose at the the Americans as they're leaving so it's there's a lot of like statement to this that that uh, may help them in terms of recruitment. Uh, now there are a lot of there are a lot of people who have speculated, sort of analysts who have speculated about the complicated links between ISK and the Taliban. You know, it's not quite as simple as I've I guess made it sound that they're uh, sort of at odds with one another. There are harder line elements within the Taliban, like the Haqqani network, which is very famously, uh, you know, the perhaps the most violent kind of uh, jihadist faction within the Taliban. And there's been some suggestion that that there may be overlap between that faction in particular and the Islamic State in terms of, you know, people uh, kind of moving from one to the other and maybe having some communication with, with each other. But for the most part, you know, at, at the macro level, these are two groups that are opposed to one another. And this is as much an attempt to kind of embarrass the Taliban and, and stake out a position um, as they take power, as it is an attack against uh, the Americans and, and the, you know, the foreigners. And we should expect at this moment for there to be a fluidity in these sorts of uh, alignments and relationships. With the United States leaving, that creates an entire new structure of power that will play itself out over the next few months. And But uh, it does suggest that there's going to be increasing, or not necessarily increasing, but continued violence in Afghanistan um, for the foreseeable future, uh, whether that turns into a full-blown civil war or whether that turns into a form of stochastic violence at different areas around the country, particularly in the major cities, I think it's going to be difficult to know, but it does right. suggest I think, that I think a lot violence. of it depends on, um, you know, this moderate face that the Taliban has tried to adopt since they seized Kabul and the extent to which they actually follow through with it in, in actual policy and practice, which may alienate some people within the Taliban and, and drive them to uh, a group like ISK that takes a harder line on on things like women and minorities. And, and so, it, you know, a lot of it depends on uh, what happens over the, the next few months. 
Yeah, we'll definitely keep you updated here on American Prestige. But it turns out, Derek, that not everyone is happy about uh, the United States' actions in Afghanistan. And before we get to the main topic, I just wanted to say that it really has been I don't want to say it's not hasn't been surprising, but it's it's disappointing and probably depressing how so much of the U.S. NATSEC aligned media has responded to the United States' withdrawal of Afghanistan. It just really shows the imperial pretensions of the entire media apparatus. And despite the fact that so much of that apparatus did so much to get us into these pointless wars in Afghanistan and Iraq in the first place, they've really learned nothing. And it just demonstrates the sheer structural power of the national security establishment, which includes not only the defense contractors, the official organs of government or the semi-private think tanks that rely so much on government contracts, but also includes the so-called private media. You know, a private media that for reasons of access and for reasons of ideology is so aligned uh, with the U.S. um, imperial project. And I just think that's been underlined so much in the past uh, week that it would be, you know, derelict not to bring it up and highlight it. And I think it's important going forward because it's really interesting how probably for the first real time in this media apparatus's existence, at least on a wide scale, there's been really um, significant pushback from the types of independent media sources and from Twitter, uh, et cetera. So it does seem that even though this structure is really powerful, and there's no point in denying that. Um, I think there is a glimmer of hope that people are just finally calling bullshit. People are finally recognizing that this whole media structure is aligned with a particular project that doesn't benefit any Americans or most people around the world, except for a small a small circle of elites who make money off of uh, American imperialism. So I just wanted to say that as a moment of of hope. And speaking of hope, um, there were some uh, there's there's been some uh, you know fighting amongst the the liberal international order, the core of the liberal international order. There's been some disagreements. Um, so Derek, it seems to me. <laughs> That a lot of the uh, a lot of the European nation states, you know, the, the big the big ones, the ones the United States actually cares about. You know, we're not talking about Poland or Hungary. We're talking about the UK. We're talking about France. We're talking about Germany. People are upset uh, about what the U.S. is doing. So, what have the European leaders said, uh, and why do you think they are, you know, really so so apoplectic? They're so upset that the United States is leading Afghanistan, and then we'll we'll say what based by. Biden did in response. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's been a lot of like hemming and hawing from Europe uh, about th- the withdrawal, um, you know, complaining about the withdrawal. There was a big debate in the British Parliament last week where, you know, they condemned Biden. You know, people were speaking in very stark terms about Biden's failure. Lord Palmsbury about- from the North Shreveport yeah. Shire condemns exactly. Biden in the strongest terms. Um, there was a lot of complaining. There's been a lot of complaining about the evacuation, which y- y- to give Biden his due as as much as I thought, you know, it started out chaotically. The United States has airlifted almost 100,000 people uh, out of Afghanistan by now. They, they've done, you know, just an, a, a really I mean, I think you have to say commendable job of sort of ramping up from nothing. Which uh, actually does suggest that early reports that they didn't do it because the Afghan government requested them not to might actually be accurate, that they did have some sort of capacity and that they actually did get it together. Um, yeah, I think I mean, relatively they, they quickly the capacity. Sure. I, I think the question is. Um, was anybody doing any contingency planning for a, a quick collapse of the Afghan government? And that's still 
unclear to me. But but regardless, I mean, uh, whether they were or they weren't, they, they've done uh, really kind of a, an amazing job of ratcheting this thing up. And yet uh, you hear a lot of complaints from the Europeans that there was a, a lot of pressure uh, on Biden to extend the evacuation deadline beyond August 31st, which in practical terms is really more like today or tomorrow for, for countries that need to get their own military forces out. Um, and, and you know, a lot of kind of grief about, you know, the United States isn't letting us have a say. The United States isn't letting us, uh, you know, follow our own national interest here. And I, I, I have to say, like, this is the one thing that that makes me a nationalist. Like I have very little nationalist <laughs> sentiment in me, except when dealing the with the Europeans. Thing, except when American the, prestige like, uh, supports nationalism. <laughs> who are are basically? I mean, you and I have talked about this. Basically, regional managers in the American Empire. Like, if you're the Prime Minister of Britain, I'm sorry, you're like the senior vice president for North Atlantic affairs in the empire. That's your job. And maybe not even now after Brexit, they've probably been demoted. But like to see <laughs> these people who have spent 70 years outsourcing their national defense to the United States and living off of that, like not having to spend the money on their own national defense because the United States was doing it for them, turn around and say, you know, we're not being allowed to to follow our national interests. My, my response to that is like, OK, do it yourselves. Like, go do your own evacuation. Do your own thing. Reinvade Afghanistan and occupy it. Oh, wait, you can't because you don't have a military that can function without the United States anymore because you become basically cogs and, and you know, dependencies of the United States. Like, you know, make up. You, there's there's like this this. I can't have like this really pisses me off. Like, you know, you you make the conscious decision to let the United States protect you and let your own national security apparatus atrophy and, and redivert those resources to other things. Uh, if you do that, you have to go along then. You can't complain later on that you're not being allowed to fulfill your own national ambitions or whatever. And to see not just the current leaders like Merkel and, and Boris Johnson complain about this, but past leaders like Theresa May, the, you know, possibly the dumbest prime minister in British history, <laughs> complain about the competence with which this has been done. Like, just come on, man. Tony Blair, who should be in fucking leg irons at the International Criminal Court on trial, complaining about this. Like, this this man should just shut up. Just shut up. Stop talking. Stop talking in public. Uh, and it's just been it's been really irritating. I'm sorry. I know I'm like ranting here. It's been really irritating to watch this. Uh, first of all, Mad Derek is one of my favorite Dereks. We need to bring that that man out more. It's it's really wonderful to watch. I wish you all had the visuals I did. The passion is just uh, too much. De Derek is a man of extraordinary passion, and I'm glad that's able to come out. Um, it's interesting. It reminds me almost of of The Wire a little bit. The famous Marlowe quote. You know, they want it to be one way, but it's the other way. The Europeans yeah, really, right. you know, they really do. They 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 want to have their cake and eat it too. They they want to pretend to this great power status that, you know, they really did enjoy for a significant amount of, of post-1789 history, uh, that they effectively surrendered after they committed suicide in two world wars uh, to the United States. And they want to feel like they're actual partners. And they're, they're really not partners. Uh, and this is what I think is interesting about Biden, because it really does uh, appear to me that since Trump, there's been uh, the, the dam around discursive norms has really broken. Obviously, 
obviously Trump, first of all, criticizing the Iraq war and his various other vulgarities and um, many uh, areas of his of his governance. Um, but now Biden is doing it. And that, whether that's because, you know, he thinks he's in a malt shop in 1955 or not, it really is important because it does suggest that some ways of talking about the world are changing. Because how did Biden respond to these various European complaints um, during the G7 meeting? I mean, he just basically said no. I mean, the, the the big ask was, you know, will you extend the evacuation deadline? And he said no. Uh, and and he was right. I mean, he was right first because uh, the, the evacuation is probably on schedule at this point to finish, like to get all the foreign nationals, which, you know, we can talk about, you know, the fact that that Afghans who should be evacuated are not going to be evacuated. And that's a tragedy and something that should be criticized. But uh, to folk, if we focus just on Western foreign nationals, they are going all the foreign nationals who want to come out by August 31st will be will probably have the chance to leave. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that's one reason not to extend the deadline. The other reason is the Part of the 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 part of the reason this has been so successful and you've been able to ratchet up so quickly is because the Taliban has gone along with it, uh, with the understanding that it would be over on August thirty first. They haven't interfered. Uh, in fact, they've provided some security around the airport. Like some of the the casualties in today's bombing, for example, are Taliban fighters who were guarding the airport. Um, so, I mean, there's been some some you know, strain on that relationship and some resistance uh, in particular areas. But for the most part, you've gotten the Taliban to kind of allow this to happen. So why announce that you're going to extend the deadline and potentially sort of turn them uh, into, you know, turn things into a situation where the that relationship gets quite hostile and starts interfering with the evacuation. So, I mean, he was absolutely right to 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 you know, deny this request uh, from the European leaders. But it was, you're right, it was basically just like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Thanks for asking. But no, uh, there was no real consideration for for massaging their feelings. And I, yeah. you know, I would say you talk about Trump, this goes all the way back to the, the George W. Bush administration. I mean, you remember, in the lead up to the Iraq war, there was all this talk about we don't care about old Europe anymore. Right. Uh, we were even doing it at then. the very beginning. Like, yeah. With we France. Don't care about yeah. France. We don't care about, you know, the UK. We've got the, you know, the coalition of the willing or whatever the hell they were talking about. <laughs> um, but but, you know, this has been going on for a while. You're right. Trump kind of pulled back uh, a lot of the the bullshit, you know, kind of the the uh, rhetorical niceties of, of it. But but it's it's been something that I think has been present in in discourse in Washington about foreign policy for a while. No, I think that's right. And uh, my prediction is that Europe will do nothing because they can't do anything. They can't do anything. And so I think that we'll be seeing um, in the coming years, Europe essentially uh, accept more visibly, more publicly uh, their roles as the junior managers of the American empire, because that is uh, exactly what they are. And I think that's an important way to view it. But just so American prestige listeners or their real name, American prestige heads, uh, think that we're going soft on the Democratic <laughs> Party, uh, let's turn to a friend of the pod, Ben Rhodes. Yeah, um, no, this is a Biden, pro-Biden <laughs> podcast, not a pro-Democrat podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, 
pro, pro Biden in this very, very particular. Pro, pro Biden right at this moment. Yeah. Right at this very moment. Uh, ho- hopefully we'll be able to turn on him soon. Um, sure no, just kidding. To, just yeah. kidding. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, I want to turn to Ben Rhodes because I think he's actually a really interesting figure. He, he's a young guy. He's born in 1977, which makes him either 43 or 44, depending on when his birthday is. He was a, a deputy national security advisor under Obama from 2009 to 2017, um, the entirety of the term. Uh, and he recently published an article in Foreign Affairs titled Them and Us, How America Lets Its Enemies Hijack Its Foreign Policy. But before we get, uh, we're going to do a quick reading series from this article. I wanted to read something from uh, Ben's memoir. I believe it's from The World As It Is, uh, and how he uh, responded to the events of 9 11, because I think it says something important about the time and important about American masculinity. So this is this is a quote from Ben describing his reaction to the September 11th, uh, 2001 attacks. So here we're going to start, quote, I wanted to be a part of what happened next, and I was repelled by the reflexive liberalism of my New York University surroundings. The professor who suggested that we sing God Bless Afghanistan to the tune of God Bless America, the preemptive protests against American military intervention, the reflexive distrust of Bush. I visited an army recruiter under the Queensboro Bridge. After leaving with a pile of materials and getting a few follow-up phone calls, I decided that I couldn't see myself in uniform. Instead, I would move to Washington to write about the events reshaping my world. I had never considered being a speechwriter, and I had never heard of Lee Hamilton. But one reference led to another, and I soon found myself at the Wilson Center, one small cog in the vast machinery of people who think, talk, and write about American foreign policy. End quote. So I wanted to talk about that one because it's really funny. It's kind of like a, a hold, me, hold me back, bro. You know, I, I, I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna join the military, but actually, totally I'll just. Gonna join the military, I was totally gonna join the military, uh, which was like people who are too young. Words will hurt more. Wound you, yeah. For for people who don't remember, this was like a very, or people who weren't alive or who were very young at the time, this was like a very common response amongst the bro contingent after nine eleven. A lot of declarations about joining the military, but, but quick, um, but sort of a quick turn to not joining the military into doing anything else. So one that's just pretty funny. And it's kind of funny. He wrote about that because I, I don't know, from my perspective, that's a little embarrassing. If I did that, I wouldn't necessarily commit that to print for, <laughs> for all of posterity and all of history. But I do think it's important to understand sort of the reflexive masculinity that was felt after 9-11, because that, I think that was a major reason that the United States actually got involved in these wars. The idea that the United States was like violated and the idea that the only way to... You, redress this violation was to, you know, uh, bestride the world because I think there was a generation of people growing up in the 1990s and 2000s, a generation of young men who really felt uh, adrift, who really felt like there was no meaning to their life, that they didn't have a World War II to fight, even though they were watching movies like Saving Private Ryan and playing video games like Medal of Honor and Call of Duty. And so what 9-11 provided people of Rhodes's uh, generation, of our generation, I don't think Rhodes is unique here, um, was 
a, a feeling? Was it the sense of mission in the world? Um, so it's interesting to see where he is now, because in this article that I just mentioned, uh, again, Them and Us, How America Lets Its Enemies Hijack Its Foreign Policy, it's very interesting because in some sense, the article is an advancement or what I would consider a progression because Rhodes effectively says that the United States essentially shouldn't do what it did the past 20 years. I don't know, Derek, what was your impression of the article? Is that, am I describing it correctly? Yeah. I mean, he more or less comes to the conclusion that, that the United States has gotten off track. And, and I, I mean, I, I agree. It's sort of a progression from, uh, where he's like mocking the preemptive protests against intervention and the reflexive distrust of Bush, both of which were the right positions, by the way. Right. But, but, you know, where he's sort of like, oh, I, you know, I, I didn't like that very much. And now I think maybe he's come to the conclusion that they were right. I don't know if he would say that. Um, but I, I still, like there's still an apologia in here. Like there's still right. this sense of America as like this kind of well-meaning lumbering buffoon that just kind of meanders around and lets the end lets its enemies hijack. I mean, it's in the subhead. Lets its enemies hijack its foreign policy. And like we're trying to do the right thing. It's just that we're like not you know very smart about it, and we sometimes uh, break things or something. And it, that's. That's <laughs> such a bullshit way of thinking about U.S. foreign policy. It's uh, it's it's I mean, you, you couldn't possibly still think that I, I would think if you'd lived through the last 20 years. But here we are. Exactly. And this is what's interesting. And this is why I want to read some small excerpts from the article, because I think it's important to underline that even with the uh, the Rhodes-esque uh, progression in this sort of uh, in this intellectually, there's still significant problems with how he's approaching the world. So let's just do read some short excerpts. So this is from the article. Quote, Americans must confront this uncomfortable reality, not because Washington should retreat from the world, but because it cannot cede the field to leaders like Putin and Xi. The United States must live up to the better story it tells itself as the leader of the free world. Ultimately, this is the most important lesson that Americans must learn from the post-9-11 period. Restoring American leadership requires rebuilding the example of American democracy as the foundation of the United States' foreign and national security policy, end quote. So you get this, this good thing at the end, which is like, we need to focus at home, but it's always coupled with this American imperial imagination. The idea that for some reason, Putin, who does not have the capabilities, and she, who has demonstrated absolutely no will to dominate the world, are going to somehow take over the world if the United States, you know, isn't the imperial hegemon. On. So I wanted to underline that because you really have this direct link between restoring, restoring democracy abroad and this American imperialism, uh, restoring democracy at home, sorry, and American imperialism abroad. So again, Rhodes is essentially arguing for a better American empire, right? That is what's going on here. He's not arguing for a retreat. He's arguing for a better American empire. And this comes through in the next excerpt that I quickly want to read. Quote, in addition to delivering on big-ticket items such as infrastructure, American democracy must be fortified and revitalized. Okay, that's good. Protecting the right to vote and strengthening democratic institutions at home must be the cornerstone of the United States' democratic example, unquote. And I, I, I want to emphasize this because, again— 
this the the definition of democracy in this country is incredibly incredibly limited it effectively is limited to the idea of voting the idea of choosing right. your elites right so that that is a, a, actually a historical phenomenon basically before the 1930s many americans particularly on the left or what was then called the pro progressives um the left wing of the progressive movement really had an expansive de uh, definition of democracy that included not just basically picking your leaders but also ideas of economic democracy, social democracy, uh, and cultural democracy, right? But Rhodes's piece uh, effectively promotes this very limited understanding of what it means to be a democratic citizen. And I think this understanding was actually exported abroad during the Cold War, when again, free and fair elections became the only thing that mattered when you were deciding whether or not someone was a democracy, what country was a democracy or not. And that's a really really impoverished understanding of democracy. We need to expand the imagination and not just basically say, okay, once you choose your elites, sorry, Americans, uh, go home. Uh, I think that is really crucial. And that's something that we on the left really need to, uh, to fight against. And I have one more excerpt, unless you have anything to say, Derek. No, I, I would just add, like, it's, it's, we're, we're continually shrinking the definition, like as, as we kind of shunt more and more uh, power unilaterally to the executive. It's, it's not even about like getting to pick your leaders plural anymore. It's like getting to pick your one leader who makes all the decisions for the empire and the, the sort of, uh, you know, the military and foreign policy all flow through that one person. It's not even, uh, you know, we, we're just shrinking the definition of democracy even further, I think. Exactly, because, and we'll definitely talk about this on a future episode, uh, since 1945, since the end of World War II, uh, foreign policy authority has really concentrated not only in the executive branch, but in the literal White House itself and the person of the president. So like Derek is saying, he's basically, uh, Rhodes is basically arguing for us to choose our king. Uh, and I just want to end on, on this one here. Quote, the world is a difficult and sometimes dangerous place. The United States must assert itself to defend its interests, end quote. So again, you have this very, very vague understanding of what are American interests, because what Rhodes assumes, and even, you know, the good side of the Democratic Party, the left side of the Democratic Party, uh, what many of them assume is that there's some vital interest in the world that could only be defended by U.S. military might. And I think what, again, we on the left can do in the coming years is to really push on that argument and say, what are these interests? What are America's vital interests? Because oftentimes you'll hear people talk about the national interest as if that's some unified interest that is out in the world that one can identify, when really there's a particular subset of actual people who, resent, uh, who represent actual classes in the world that make America's foreign policy decisions. So we always need to pu push back on this idea of interests and national interests and actually say, whose interests are you talking about? And how does American imperialism actually lead to the fulfillment of those interests? And what are the actual broader interests in the world? Um, so I just wanted to focus on that because I think there's really still a lot of uh, problems with how, you know, p uh, leaders are, are, who have evolved over the course of the last 20 years, there's some significant problems with how they actually approach the world. And speaking of significant problems, let's return to other friend of the pod, Ram Emanuel. And Derek, why don't you explain? <laughs> yeah, how we approach the world. <laughs> yeah, how do you, um, what's going on with old Ram? Yeah, so I mean, as the uh, the Biden administration kind of slowly cranks out its ambassadorial 
appointments. Uh, they made two big ones, uh, I guess, over, uh, I guess, Friday, uh, actually, he announced two big ones. One was um, expected. It was the, the choice. Well, they were both expected, I guess. Uh, but it was the choice of um, Nicholas Burns to be uh, ambassador to China. Uh, and the other was the choice of Rahm Emanuel, former mayor of Chicago and uh, general asshole from the Obama White House, uh, to be ambassador to Japan. And I think uh, it's worth kind of pausing on these appointments because they, in different ways, they each illustrate uh, something about the way that uh, the United States uh, doles out ambassadorships that I think are uh, interesting. So uh, explain, explain. I, I, <laughs> go well, go for uh, it, man. <laughs> Burns is an interesting choice as ambassador to China. There are uh, general, like sort of, you know, at the at the general level in the the common parlance about ambassadorships. There's two types of ambassadorships. There's the career foreign service officer, diplomat, who usually gets postings to places that are of immediate kind of concern. So, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, you know, Saudi Arabia, places that are like uh, strategically vital and and not necessarily the nicest places uh, for somebody to go. And then there's the political appointee who sort of uh, uh, is, you know, usually a big bundler from your campaign and somebody you want to do a nice thing for. And you find some, you know, tropical island somewhere or like some nice, uh, quiet European country that would be nice for them to stay in. And uh, they get to put ambassador next to their name. And, uh, you know, you send them to Ireland or to, you know, uh, Jamaica or something. And, and, Derek, and correct me if I'm wrong, but ambassador is one of those titles that like kind of lasts forever, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 You're absolutely. like an ambassador, like till till the You're till the end of your days. Life. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's really, I mean, there's really three. There's, you know, that that's the the common kind of way of looking at things. There's these two types of appointments. There's really three types of appointments, and there's a third one that applies uh, specifically to places like Russia and China that are sort of viewed as peer or close to peer competitors. Uh, and those are political appointees, but they're political appointees of people who are like ex office holders who are close to the president and have the president's ear and are meant to. Like their appointment is meant to show that like we're we, we mean business, like we're sending a friend of the president uh, as his ambassador and he's going to have the ear of the president. You better listen when this guy talks. And that's like uh, that's typically been the pattern for uh, you know ambassadors to China. Burns is a little bit different because he is a career foreign service officer. Uh, on the other hand, he does. He, he also has kind of the political aspect. He's got uh, a close relationship with Biden. So I think it's interesting and it'd be interesting to see how he performs in that role as somebody who does have some diplomatic uh, credentials as opposed to to a lot of the the uh, uh you know, the last several, I think, ambassadors to China who've all been really more political kind of heavyweight uh, picks. And um, Burns, Burns is a unique figure. I, I believe in 2016, he was on the short list of people who might have been secretary of state had Clinton won. So he yeah. is this liminal figure that exists between the worlds of sort of politics and professional diplomatic services. Um, so, yeah, I think that's on, right. On the other hand, then there's Ron, who has... 
not only no diplomatic credentials, doesn't even by any account have the temperament to be a diplomat and actually represent the United States uh, overseas. And I feel like uh, I don't know if we're upset over Pearl Harbor again or what or why we're foisting Rahm Emanuel on the poor people of Japan who do not deserve this. Um, but it's it's uh, one of these, you know, really uh, irritating political appointments that that, you know, you're giving to somebody who's wholly unqualified for the job uh, just because they've done you a solid in the past, which uh, is the kind of thing that I, I would argue has to has to end, really, especially, you know, in places like Japan that do have some strategic relevance. I mean, this isn't like we sent him off to, you know, uh, some tiny island somewhere to to take a two-year beach vacation. I mean, you know, the ambassador to Japan is a is a relevant posting and and we filled it with a buffoon, basically. And on that happy note, everyone, uh, <laughs> uh, we hope you enjoy our interview on the climate with uh, Emily Atkin. Uh, and we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Hello, American Prestige listeners. We are very pleased, Danny and myself, to be joined this week by Emily Atkin, uh, author and the founder of Heated, a weekly newsletter about climate change, which is available at stub Substack at heated.world. Uh, she's written for several other outlets. I won't go into all of them, but Think Progress, The New Republic, uh, Slate, Etc. Etc. She's appeared on MSNBC, NPR, most recently I think CNN. I saw on your your newsletter. Uh, yes, Clinton News Network. There. Congratulations! <laughs> you I'm just as surprised as you are. <laughs> so I was on Smirconish once. I was on Smirconish once, and I think okay, he's we're CNN. I've I've never been on TV, so uh, <laughs> I'll just I'll just back out of this part of the conversation. Uh, Emily, thank you very much for coming on the program. Happy to be here. So uh, I, I guess, Emily, the first question we want to begin with is, is climate change real? Oh, I mean, no, I, I consider myself more of a fiction writer. Just here and we're I agnostic. Up all day. We're, we're still waiting for the science to, to fully, you know. Yeah, the science is out. The science is out on this one. But no, Derek, I mean, take it know, away. You know, the people have always said Jews control the weather. And that's actually, that's me. Uh, I control the whole climate. Um, and I have a very good imagination. I'm constantly just making stuff. I've been making stuff up every day for the last eight years. I knew there was something to this. Okay. Yeah. All don't right. tell them our secrets, Emily. As Jews, Damn. we need to keep that close to the vest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need to protect our space lasers. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, just this is a joke and, and it is real. I just, yes, I just like I needed to like, Disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. Climate change is um, not real. <laughs> so just kidding. It's real. It's kind of gotten washed out of the headlines, which I, I, I think is normal for climate change stories. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued the first part of its sixth, I think, assessment report to, you know, a, a brief flurry of very dire sounding headlines. Uh, you wrote at, at Heated a little bit critically of, of the IPCC report for a couple of reasons, and I'd like to, to talk about those in a moment. But first, for... People like Danny and myself who are uh, recognize that this that we're in a very 
very bad situation right now, uh, but aren't necessarily climate specialists. Can you sort of walk us through the findings uh, of the IPCC report and explain what you know are your main takeaways and and the 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 real critical things to uh, to be concerned about? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'll say off the bat that I'm not in any way critical of the science of the IPCC report. It's very good science, and it's a great way to, especially if you have not, if you don't know anything about climate science, to really get your bearings on it, because it really is our best summary document of the state of the climate right now. Um, and yes, it's also super upsetting to read. So I would say the main points are that climate change is here. It's already happening. And we've already sort of passed a window of action where uh, of where we can't do anything anymore. Like there are some things that are just happening and that are going to happen. Um, and we see them all the time with the wildfires in California, hurricanes getting worse, flooding getting worse, uh, droughts getting worse. Um, and I think just recently a study came out today that said that like these huge floods in, in Germany were definitely because of climate change. And that's because of a new type of science called attribution science, which also helped this report. But um, so some of this stuff is already here. So we have to adapt to some stuff, right? Uh, basically, what that's telling us is, OK, it's here. We have to adapt. Um, the other thing it told us that's super important is that we're sort of running out of time before things start to sort of spiral, which is that which sort of means that some some effects of global warming will speed the other ones up, right? Um, and it's like melting permafrost then releases more methane, which then causes war more warming, which then releases more methane. So these like kind of feedback loops uh, that scientists are worried about. Um, it was really a, a call to arms in a lot of way from scientists. And it was the strongest piece of, uh, communications that this scientific, very traditionally conservative scientific body has given. I'm not going to go into all of the ways that like the earth might get more screwed up because I think that everyone listening to this probably already knows and there's no need for me to say it. Um, what I'll also say the probably the third biggest thing that this report said was that unequivocally climate change is caused, the climate changes we're seeing now are caused by humans, by greenhouse gases, right? So this is the first time that this report has ever said unequivocally, all this is happening. But it also said, you know, we still have a window to prevent some of the worst stuff. So it's actually in a way kind of good news because we have the best scientific, almost most conservative scientific body in the world saying, yeah, we know 100% it's this uh, and we also know 100% that in order to solve it, we just need to stop putting so much carbon in the atmosphere and take some of it out. So I've got a quick question about that last point. Um, so I, you know, skimmed through the report and read the summary and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like they're dating human induced climate change to the middle of the 19th century ish. I think they take 1850 as, as the starting point. So, uh, am I correct? That's normal. I, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So my, am I correct in that assumption is that they're basically arguing, they probably wouldn't say it, but industrialism, industrialization plus capitalism equals climate change, at least as historically induced, right? That is that is the claim, like the, the, the literal technology of industrialization, really, I believe that's the second industrial revolution, apologies, my 19th century uh, historians, if I'm incorrect, but that's really when capitalism takes off. So you have the literal technology of industrialization plus the ideological superstructure of sort of like capitalism and its beliefs seems to have caused climate change. Is that a correct uh, deducement, <laughs> deduction? There's there's a reason that all of these charts start like around the Industrial Revolution. Um, it's because that's when we started producing. Uh, how, how Am I allowed to curse? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I already did curse. Uh, an ass ton of carbon emissions. Um, yeah. Please that's curse when, as much as possible. Yes. Uh, and you'll see that, I mean, there's also a reason why the most carbon emissions come from the most, uh, like, capitalistic countries, except for China, obviously. But, uh, you know, just Which the, the most production, now, yeah. like, growth, like, like, insane growth, right? Like, in economies that are insanely centered, their whole thesis is grow, 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 grow big, better, big, better. Uh, those are the biggest contributors to the climate crisis. Now, my criticism of the IPCC report that I wrote for my newsletter was like, it's not a good communications, it's a good science document, but this specific part, especially to be released first. So this is part one of like a three part report uh, that'll be released over the course of the next like six months. Um, this one doesn't really say why, it just says emissions are definitely causing all of this apocalyptic hellscape and will cause more apocalyptic hellscape. And it uses this very vague term of human-caused emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. And it kind of sucks because the other reports are going to go into where they come from. And you'll see in those reports, as anyone who follows climate science know, that it's fossil fuels. It's like all fossil fuels. There's other stuff too. You know, there's agriculture, there's deforestation, another huge one. Um, but it's deforestation and fossil fuels. Those are our two big ones. So it's like, because of the conservative nature of the IPCC, they're not going to say fossil fuels. And in fact, the drafts of this report that was leaked beforehand said fossil fuels all throughout the summary. And then when it was published, all of those mentions are t taken out. There's a reason for that. I, I don't know if you want me to get into it right yeah, now, but like, yeah. Could, could we get into it in one second? Because I do just want to make one point. Um, so the way that I view it is you essentially have a North Atlantic derived vision of growth that was during the era of colonialism exported to the rest of the world and due to the you know, colonialism being roughly 500 years old, let's say. Uh, and so you have that the uh, countries of what had formerly been the global South, what are, you know, quote unquote, developing or whatnot, basically adopting this ideology of permanent growth because they need to. To survive in this global capitalist system. Um, so I think it's really interesting how you see the exportation of North Atlantic derived um, political structures like the nation state, but also ideologies like the ideology of growth and how that's literally uh, destroying the world. Um, and I just wanted to highlight that macro historical phenomenon, that very clear link between growthism, capitalism, and climate change. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love for you to uh, talk a little bit about why they removed. I have a I have a hunch it has to do with money, but why did mm. they remove the fossil fuel uh, <laughs> stuff? 
Well, it has to do with politics, which all have to do with money. So the IPCC report, the reason it's so authoritative is because it uh, it's like a UN-approved report, and that means that every single country that's a part of it, 196 countries, I think, need to sign off on it, everything. They're going to say yes. So, and it's, you know, thousands of scientists work on the whole report. This one was a, a couple hundred. Uh, they look through 14,000 different studies to really produce something that every single country in the world is going to go, yes, this is our baseline of information that we're working with. But unfortunately, a lot of countries um, are the fossil fuel industry. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there are a few countries that are that are very beholden to that industry. And so when they see, if they see in the summary report for policymakers, the one that most people read, because most people don't read the real IPCC report that just came out, that one was 1,600 pages. Like, I didn't even read that whole thing. I read a lot of it, but I didn't read all of it. Um, and they say fossil fuels in that, but they say it like, I don't know, 20 times or something like that, 1,600 pages. Uh, in the summary, all of that was taken out. And that is why the IPCC has always been so conservative is because it's not a communications document. It's a science document uh, for so that all when the countries all come together to make uh, agreements to reduce emissions, that they're all working from the same baseline of information that they all agreed to. Right. So we use this as this big communications document. It's like the one time that the media always covers climate change, the whole the whole, it's the one time ever, the last one of these came out in 2013, by the way, when I started climate reporting, like it's, it's the only time the whole news ecosystem mobilizes and is like climate change day, but it's not a community, it's not a good communications document is what it's like, because they don't even talk about fossil fuels. What do you think? I, I mean, I, I don't know if you get asked this question. I've been asked this question and I don't know how to answer it, but um, you, what do you think is the mindset of politicians, um, you know, anybody who's at a, an elite level of sort of policymaking in the United States or in Europe, um, who looks at this report and, and understands what it says and responds to it with, why don't you take out some of the fossil fuel talk? And and let's put together something a little little less inflammatory. Like my cynical take on this, where you you know you have a range of elite responses that go from complete denialism to like a sort of earnest rhetoric that's nevertheless completely inadequate to the the nature of the challenge. And my my take on this is that there is while while people while elites in the West sort of recognize that that what's coming and recognize what's happening. They also recognize that they're going to be the last people to feel the effects of it, right? The, the, as we're already seeing, like the first line here are, uh, you know, people who are going to be, who, you know, can't adapt, can't adapt to massive temperature spikes, can't adapt to drought, can't adapt to flooding, um, you know, and, and are sort of, at the bottom of the the socio global socioeconomic ladder, the global south, basically, uh, and it's going to be a while before any real pain is kind of visited upon um, the upper echelons of Western society, and so we're just not at the point where they're ready to talk about this in a way that 
reflects any sense of of pain or or threat to them. I don't know. That's that's like my my ultra cynical take on this. But what what is your sense of how something so stark comes to be kind of laundered in a way that makes it less uh, sort of apparent? I mean, what you're describing is how we've dealt with, like the world has dealt with every long-term problem it has ever faced. Think that, <laughs> in a way, it's almost comforting <laughs> because it's like, well, yeah, of course we're doing this. We we have always done this. Uh, <laughs> we've always seen the like, norm you know, remains. oh, that's going to be bad later. But you're like, well, this sucks now, and also like, maybe I can do good now, or like. We always choose our own comfort over what we know is right. And uh, the most powerful people and the biggest polluters are the most comfortable. You know what I'm saying? Uh, sure, so sure. I think that, I mean, I guess I would, what, what are you asking in terms of like, how does, how do we change that awful knowledge? I mean, I, this is probably I, well, the worst long term sort of thing. The, the, <laughs> the next level of that question, but I, I'm just, I mean, I, I, I sort of wonder if you have any better sense or a better, more educated guess, basically about like what is going through people's heads as they sort of read this and then go back to doing nothing about it or talking about, uh, you know, we have to get back to the Paris Agreement, which was inadequate when <laughs> they they agreed to it, let alone, uh, you know, years later, we now know it's sort of, uh, you know, it's become a best case scenario instead of a, a reasonable compromise. Yeah. Okay. So I have a, I have an idea. Um, and it's basically that I don't think, I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance between, uh, recognizing that climate change is real and bad and understanding that solving it requires transitioning away from fossil fuels. I think that not even just our most powerful people, like in politics and in media, but even like general public understanding um, has been really successfully convinced that that like we're the problem or that or just or just they don't know what the solution is. I think that and if and when they're told it's fossil fuels, everyone just goes, no, like there must be like there's definitely we can definitely make a technology to make fossil fuels okay. Like and or we can have to make a technology to like suck all the carbon out of the atmosphere. And we're never going to have to stop using fossil fuels because that is too hard. That is too hard to comprehend for people. Stop using fossil fuels transition. Right. And so I think that that's it. And I think that as more people come to understand it, when like you heard the UN secretary say, this report spells the death knell for, for coal and for fossil fuels. I mean, that's, that's like understanding, oh, yeah, there's a there's a solution to the pandemic and it's the vaccine. There's a solution to climate change and it's transition away from fossil fuels and the fossil fuel economy. But that's like saying take away all the rich people's gold. Right. And and to me, it's also uh, deeply connected, again, to global capitalism and particularly the United States' role in it, where, as, as I understand the last, you know, 100 years of, of U.S. history, is that the United States made a very concerted effort to place itself the top uh, at the top of a global chain of consumption. And to some degree, particularly beginning in the 1960s, to be an American meant to be a consumer. 
And so you have this um, very difficult situation where like literally, for example, after 9-11, George W. Bush's response was go shop, right? Uh, One of the most important things at the early pandemic was, you know, continue to spend money so that you save essential workers. If everyone remembers those early pandemic commercials about essential workers basically delivering goods and thank you for allowing us to consume. So- it wouldn't only require, you know, a shifting in American consciousness, but it would re- require almost a total reconfiguration of what it means to be an American to address fossil fuels. We're a country famously after World War II built around cars. You know, we got rid of our public transportation systems. We built highways instead. And, you know, again, there's an identification of what it means to be an American with the consumption of literal fossil fuels. Um, so it seems like that's an enormous structural and cultural transformation that I don't see happening barring some kind of um, gigantic exogenous shock, which may well come from climate change. But as Derek says, the problem, and Emily, please correct me if I'm wrong, the problem for that um, transfiguration is that a lot of um, climate change's immediate effects will be felt most significantly in the global south. Um, so that seems to be uh, an intractable and very difficult obstacle um, that presents a significant barrier to change. Yeah, I think about this a lot. Um, we did two book clubs for my newsletter over uh, the deep, the deep quar, uh, deep pandemic, and one was uh, braiding sweet grass. Uh, by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And that was like all about changing your mindset to live in reciprocity with the world instead of, um, you know, taking from the world, that kind of stuff, right? The the antidote to uh, kind of capitalist thinking when it comes to the environment. And then the other one was donut economics, um, which is about like an economic theory that does not rely on growth, basically. Um, trying to deprogram econ- economics uh, for to make it so like we're not obs- as obsessed with GDP, we're obsessed with human quality of life. Um, and how do you create economies around that? And so it's been a lot of thinking about how do you push for that system-wide change? Um, and then when you think about what would, it would take, it's, it's absolutely, like you said, you're like, I don't know, we're going to, I mean, we would have to I mean, uh, war, I don't know. Uh, what I have, what I have started doing is trying to figure out, at least start figuring out the ways that I, I like approach my own life with that kind of brainwashed mentality. Um, like recently I just switched my newsletter from daily to weekly because I realized that I was burning myself out and that I I was absolutely burned out. I had like literally extracted everything I could for success. And I had like created this really great, successful newsletter that was working for a lot of people and and helping a lot of people, but at the cost of my own well-being. And uh, I really literally felt like I had was drained of everything from me. And I, I experienced such intense anxiety about what would happen if I stopped? What would happen? What would happen if I stopped growing? I had already reached a place with the newsletter that I was happy about that, you know, and that like, and then I was just like, you know what? I'm doing exactly what the fossil fuel industry does to the world. It makes us so scared that if we just, if we stop growing, if we stop getting richer, if we stop being more successful, that 
that that's what's going to kill us. And in, in fact, it's it's the exact opposite. So I've been trying to find ways to apply that to my own life, figure out how to live like in reciprocity with myself, and then create like-minded communities to go forward and figure out how to do it. I think that's really interesting because I uh, I think we're around the same age and just growing up in the 1990s and early 2000s after the end of the Cold War, the promise was, of course, that you know there was no alternative in any structural or, or ideological sense to capitalism. So I think a lot of millennials were grown up on this like hustle culture, you know. And I I just want to say I feel it myself, you know, constantly working and and to what end? And I just thought, think that's a really interesting way to approach it because I think I'm personally also a bit skeptical of like the individual consumer choice argument, which is, you know, because I don't think that's really going to make any change. I think that's kind of demonstrated. But basically what what you're describing to me sounds really viable, which is learning a new way, a new framework by which to approach work and extraction, the extraction of labor from yourself as a way to at least beginning uh, to form, like you said, like-minded communities around a different ideology of work and extraction. It's really interesting. Yeah, I don't really subscribe to individual behavior change in, in as much as, and this is my whole newsletter is premised on the ideas like the climate crisis is not your fault. It's the fault of like systemic, powerful people, whatever. But also, uh, so, you know, for me, it's not like if I just drive an electric car, like we'll be fine, you know, but I am a big believer in like the power of setting good examples and of changing the culture, because I think what our generation for sure has realized is that, and, and you know, mine, the girl boss mentality, like lean in, you know, um, is that that also sucks. And my life, like I can be one, I can be a really well-off person in, in a, in the developed world and still be deeply unhappy. And, and then when, and it's because of that. Right. And so it's, I need and it, something that I, I get pissed off about is that there's no example around me and how to live a life that looks different than that, but is still successful and still helping. And then I'm like, okay, well, that's my individual thing that I'm going to do is that I'm going to try to make change the culture in a way, you know, and do it with my workplace. And that's more exciting to me than like recycling and composting, which I do, by the way, I just don't talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, When you, you mentioned the, you know, sort of the stark comments from the UN after the, IP, the after the report was issued. Sort of, this has to be the the death knell of fossil fuels. I, I wanted to um, note, I guess, and get your reaction uh, to a couple of the responses to that. Um, one came from uh, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of Australia, who a couple of days after the IPCC report gets asked, you know, are you going to set a climate goal because Australia still hasn't done that. Uh, Australia is like the Kali cartel for coal, basically. I mean, they're like the global dealer for, for coal. They're not great. Um, and and, <laughs> his, and his, his response was, no, we're not going to set a, I mean, what, what do you want from us? We're doing the best we can and we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And then he talked about uh, and this is something I, 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 I've seen more and more of, uh, makes, made some vague reference to non-existent technology and that's going to save us. Technology will save us in the future. Like John Kerry made a reference to that, I think, a, a few weeks ago. The other response came from none other than the Biden administration. Uh, Danny and I have already talked about this, but after the one day sort of flurry of 
headlines and Joe Biden tweeting things about how we can't wait. It's time to tackle climate change. Now, his national security advisor two days later uh, was telling reporters, you know, OPEC plus really needs to start pumping more oil because they're hampering the the recovery from the, the pandemic. And I, I think that goes to what you're talking about. It's sort of the, the disconnect between understanding what is the problem and what is causing the problem. And the, the idea that these two sentiments can't really coexist. Like, we need to get serious about climate change and also, like, make with the oil. Like, these two ideas can't coexist <laughs> yeah. anymore. No, it's, it's uh, have you ever, like, read about cognitive dissonance? <laughs> I mean. That's it. And like, there's one thing to like, just understand what it is, you know, the difference between like your beliefs and actions. And when there's a conflict, but when there's a conflict between them, you just like freak out and you will do anything to, to, to make that conflict disappear. Um, it's, I, I see, just see it so much with climate change, uh, where people are like, I think I'm really concerned about climate change. And then, but I think we need to keep, uh, I think we need to keep extracting fossil fuels. And you're like, okay, how do you reconcile those two things? And what, and often what the answer is, is like magic. Like how about a magic <laughs> new technology? It's basically the same as being like, what if you injected bleach in your veins to solve COVID? You know, it, that's the equivalent idea of what it is. It's just some like woo woo, like weird, dangerous idea that'll probably kill you. Um, that no actual scientist or like, you know, maybe one scientist, maybe like 2% of scientists, right, would be like, sure, yeah, let's try that. Um, that's would say, that's but sort it's, of the amazing thing. Yeah, like, like, the response to those things is so different. Like, when Donald Trump says, maybe we can bring the sunlight inside the body, everybody <laughs> mocks him, right, justifiably. But when John Kerry says, don't worry, technology will save us in the future that we don't technology we don't really know about yet. Like that goes un, unremarked upon. That's just sort of well, normal, and that's because he's way to partially talk. right, right? Like if you understand what the solutions for climate change have to be, it's not just that we have if we stopped producing fossil fuels tomorrow, if there was a magic way to completely shift the the energy system to renewable tomorrow, we would still need better carbon removal technologies to stop some of the worst things from happening still, because that's how fucked we've, we've become, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and it's yeah, absolutely yeah. essential that we invest in new tech magic technologies, right? Like, and there probably will be some magic carbon removal technologies in the future. And I really hope that there will be, but like to think that, we will develop one that'll be so powerful that we won't also have to completely decarbonize the economy. That's woo-woo shit. That's that's sunlight in the body shit. Absolutely. And and it's wild to me that most journalists who question political leaders have no expertise in climate science. And so when somebody says that shit, they don't actually know that they're hearing the dumbest shit in the world, right? They're like, huh, interesting. <laughs> Next question, right? You're like, okay, great. I'm happy. Yeah. And I would also probably add, it doesn't help that the entire leadership class of the party that's supposed to care about this is very old, you know, and literally Seems won't be old. around. Yeah. Yeah. Super <laughs> old. Uh, and also, you know, um, the gerontocratic structure of the Democratic Party, you know, is I think a really big obstacle. It's hard to feel, you know, um, 
urgent about something that you know you're not going to be around to see. And another thing in terms of the magic technology, then we really need to refigure how we do technology in this country. Like we did during World War II, we, you know, gathered people in one place and developed a radar and the atomic bomb. Um, There should be some sort of collective response to, to climate technology, but it just seems like it's being left mostly in the hands of private corporations for very particular historical reasons that I think are very problematic. But it's not even just the olds, you know, it's it's honestly it's the people who are and I would say this is almost like a bigger problem is the people who are obsessed with being um, in the middle, you know, like or being, you know, authoritative, reasonable, reasonable. (laughs) And they and you see this at especially media organizations. I mean, there's a reason why I'm here in my own office writing my own friggin newsletter. Uh, it's not because I couldn't get a job at a media organization. It was because they're so obsessed with reasonableness that they don't, that they refuse to accept the truth when the truth is unreasonable, right? Exactly. So the, the, re, the unreasonable truth about climate science is that you can't solve climate change without almost totally eliminating fossil fuels. Uh, there's scenarios in the future that, you can solve it while still using fossil fuels for like plastic production a little bit. Right. Um, But like the energy system, no more fossil fuels for the energy system and editors, you know, big reasonable media people hear this and they're like, that's an activist thing. It's not a science thing. And you're like, well, did you look at the science? Because the science actually says that's a science thing. And they're like, no, it's an activist thing. So we need to be in the middle. You're like, it's like in the middle of what? the science and and the people who are just lying all the time, basically. Right. And the view from nowhere winds up just reaffirming power structures because there's no such thing as a view from nowhere. It's a view of power. And that's exactly what you're describing. And uh, I think, you know, as we go through a lot of foreign policy stuff, we'll see that, that that's true for a lot of different journalistic areas. Yeah. <laughs> 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 when we talk about the 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 technology woo and I, I mean you know this this is I'm asking you to kind of speculate on on things that obviously don't exist yet so feel free to not do that if you prefer not to why well, um, I would be but, wouldn't be any different than anybody else <laughs> as we get sort of deeper and deeper into this and the need for some kind of currently non-existent technology to save us uh gets bigger and bigger um what are i mean it seems to me that there are huge dangers to this uh, in terms of like we're going to develop a technology that that cleans more carbon out of the atmosphere but that's got to come with some kind of a side effect that or likely would come with some kind of a side effect that we aren't cognizant of and it will get to the point where we have to make a choice between you know whatever yeah. horrible thing that new technology does and the horrible effects of climate change like is that do you feel that as a or see that as a as a concern here yeah um well what i see as a concern is like the false idea that energy production can be harmless um no matter what like switching switch to a full renewable energy economy there's going to be environmental costs to that there's going to be bad stuff that happens. I mean, it's not harmless to make a solar panel, you know, it's not harmless to build an offshore wind turbine. It's, you know, it actually creates carbon um, to to make these things. And it 
disrupts environments and nuclear waste is a thing. And if you suck a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere, where does it go? It's not like we can just zap it away. It, it go, it's garbage. It's basically producing waste. We'll make big rocks out of carbon and maybe someone will figure out a way to build a building with it. But like, you know, based on how we generally operate, someone, Elon Musk will be like, why don't we put it on the moon? You know, like, <laughs> that's, you know, like the, the right, even, right. even the, the quote unquote clean energy future, there's going to be dirty stuff to it, but it's not like, it's not like that's a deterrent from it because everything is already dirty. Right. right? So what is the, it's basically like, when you're, I try to make as many pandemic comparisons as possible because I feel like it's the best way for people to understand it. It's basically when you're assessing risk of like, okay, do I get a vaccine? Do, what if it's like the difference between like getting a vaccine or like standing six feet away from somebody, but we're both unvaccinated and we both have COVID, right? So it's like that's fossil fuels is is that. And then the other one is like, I don't know, 60% of the population is vaccinated, but like sometimes we still get COVID cases and sometimes people still die. And like, there's always going to be pain and suffering and horrible stuff in the world. Um, and what I hate is the argument from uh, fossil fuel people who are like, well, you know, solar's dirty too. And it's like, yeah, well, we got to address that also. What do you think? I, I don't right, care right. if people like die in mines or, or if a bunch of fish die. Of course they do, right? Right. Yeah. That's I mean, it's sort of the manufacturing, the the you know, the minerals that are required are often located in places where you have to worry about conflict mining and, and that sort of thing. But right. It's sort of like those are other problems to address. It's not a reason to just kind of keep on keeping on, I guess. Yeah. It's uh, like, well, other people might die. So why don't we just keep killing the people we're already killing? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, what? exactly. What? As we sort of, as you sort of look at the near-term future and the chances of arresting the, as you said, you know, so, in some cases, sort of locked-in processes that that are, you know, bad stuff is happening. It's going to happen, but we can mitigate to some extent. Uh, what are your biggest? concerns other than just you know we're not going to do anything and fossil we're going to keep burning fossil fuels uh like what are some of the things that that could happen that would really send us off into a much worse future like for example you know uh you see studies of deforestation in the amazon and that we're at a tipping point where uh you know the amazon's gonna gonna start to convert to savannah and and what kind of disastrous effect that could have? Or what are what are some of the things that you are worried about? I guess in the next several years, and and that, of that nature, it's it's tough because I can say what I'm worried about the most, you know, scientifically, like uh, what's going to happen. Like I, I'm worried about. I would say my biggest like worries, carbon wise, are that we like keep bulldozing the Amazon for sure because that's a resource that you cannot get back. Um, and not just the Amazon, um, like there's a lot of deforestation happening in the United States for logging. Um, that's like absorbing, that's taking away so much of our ability to absorb carbon. The ocean's ability to absorb carbon, uh, is severely decreasing. Once we take away these natural carbon absorptions mechanisms, I mean, then, the, then it's like the carbon we release into the atmosphere becomes even more harmful per emissions unit, right? So like per metric ton. So 
Uh, I'm very concerned about like not stopping gerbil scenario, basically. Um, I'm very concerned about new fossil fuel infrastructure um, because even though a lot of people are like, well, we have to replace this old stuff or it's going to leak. Um, when you build a new pipeline that ensures it's going to get used for the next 40 years and we do not have 40 years. So really concerned about projects like line three, uh, in, in Northern, uh, Minnesota. Um, so those are like the technical things I'm concerned about. What I'm really concerned about is that like we continue to not name the problem, uh, is that over the next 10, 15 years, we keep getting people in charge of like political leaders and media leaders and people who hold the microphone in society continue to be unwilling to name its deforestation, its new fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, its fossil fuel companies lying. Uh, it's all of this, you know, because I think that we've had the solutions for climate change. And this is also like scientifically very well demonstrated. We've had them for like 30 years. It's there's a lot of research that basically just says this is a problem of political will. And we're building political will every day. The more people name the problem, I've found personally that the more I just every time a bad thing comes out, and I just tweet like, guess what? It's fossil fuels. It's like a thousand, you know, people are like, yeah. Oh, you know, and it's still controversial, but it's like it was not even said for the last, it was controversial for me to say that when I started my career. Um, and I didn't start it that long ago, right? Like my climate career started in 2013. So uh, I am concerned that the political power of the fossil fuel industry will continue to kind of scare people into silence. Uh, people will be unsure, you know, that, I, I don't think people understand how much money and power and influence that industry has. And it does not, it, it does not care. Honestly, the history, there's no evidence to suggest that it cares about actually preserving uh, the quality of human life from climate change. One question I had is maybe what is the most apocalyptic scenario um, <laughs> for the world and then for Americans. Like, what are we, what are we actually looking at in 50, a hundred years when nothing happens or if nothing happens rather, let's not be super pessimistic. It's funny you should ask that. So, uh, one of the last pieces I wrote for the new Republic before I left was a magazine piece, uh, called the blood dimmed tide. And I basically took all this science, uh, about worst case scenarios, um, I won't get into exactly how they calculate those things, but it explains it in the piece. Uh, and I compiled all these different studies and then I put them together in a narrative about like what the world would look like if we didn't do anything, worst case scenario, uh, based on global conflict. So um, these are all studies about what happens if we don't do anything by 2100 through the lens of global conflict. So migration, uh, water scarcity, um, general like food shortages, uh, sea level rise, forcing people to leave their homes, stuff like that. Um, and then also how warming affects governments. Uh, and there's a lot of science to show 
that as the climate destabilizes, it creates conditions, like fearful conditions necessary for the rise of like nationalist and fascist governments. Um, and then those tend to close their borders to people, right? They tend to think me first, not those people over there. Uh, and so the worst case scenario, I think for me, is a world that increasingly uh, bends to fear, bends to fascism, bends to nationalism, uh, and closes itself off from the rest of the world uh, and thinks that it can like shield itself while other people suffer. You know, uh, I think that's where you're going to see the most suffering. So, well, we in America like, would never do that, not care about other people. So no, I'm sure we'll be fine. Not. Yeah, <laughs> We would never let fear have us bend to like a fascist. No, not us system. Americans. What? Never. You know, but never. you see it. You see it. You still you see it happening right now uh, all over the world. And that concerns me. And that's also why I think that climate change is such a diverse uh, issue. Like if you if you're like, I'm not really into science, but you're like, or like, I'm not, I can't find like I can't figure out a way to be passionate about climate change, but I am really passionate about like the uh, stopping white nationalists or like stopping uh, fascists or whatever. Like just go do that because that's part of the climate fight too. You know, like I won't get into like most of it, but like stop. Yeah. Like stopping racists is part of climate change too. Um, (laughs) Convincing people that science is real is part of climate change, even if it's not about climate, right? Like if you're somebody that educates people on vaccines, uh, that's helping climate change, um, whether you realize it or not. I think um, that uh, you talk about these being sort of the worst case scenarios by, you know, the end of the century, what the world is going to look like. But um, I wonder, you know, to, to sort of, I guess, start to wrap up on a, on a down note, which is our specialty on uh, American prestige. Uh, <laughs> talk about, Talk. Let, I mean, let's talk a little bit about some of the ways that these things are already taking place. I mean, there's a piece in foreign policy just today that I saw uh, from Anshal Vohra uh, about the Middle East and the fact that the Middle East is verging on uninhabitable right now. Uh, temperature, water, you know, all of these things are are already coming together to make this entire region, uh, you know, almost unfit for for human existence. And that's now. And as you you said earlier in the interview, even if we turned off the switch tomorrow and switched over completely to renewables, there's still this is still going to get worse. It's already baked into the the existing system. So that means places like the Middle East are going to continue to get more uninhabitable no matter what. Um, and this is this is where, you know, we, we sort of, you know, can start to maybe see things like climate refugees, things like water wars. There's already tension in places like the Horn of Africa and, uh, uh, you know, sort of Iran and, and uh, its neighbors and Turkey and its neighbors have fought uh, or had little diplomatic spats about uh, access to river water. Um, you know, how how long before we start to see some of those effects and I, I, I we're already seeing the process that's going to lead to those things um how long do you think before it becomes really apparent that that we've left parts of the world um sort of unoccupiable sooner than you think i mean it just uh just rained in antarctica that's never happened i mean it's literally never happened uh in human history it's never happened and it just happened right? It rained in Antarctica. 
what? You know, that was last week. You know, it's going to happen sooner than you think. And that's why, you know, you mentioned my CNN appearance earlier. The, I was so flabbergasted on, on how that went. Like, because, you know, it, people like passed around what I had said, because what I said was like, you're going to be, if you're not, a, if you're a reporter and you're not a climate reporter now, you will be whether you realize it or not. And I'm very confident about that. You know, it, and I'm not even a scientific genius. I've just been reporting on this for eight years. And I guarantee that if you're a reporter and you're not reporting on climate change right now, you you will be very soon. Um, and a lot of this stuff is going to happen faster than you think it is based on what we've seen at least over the past eight years. You know, things have... We've always gotten criticized in journalism and activism for being alarmists. But the truth is that since we've started, scientists have started making predictions over the last 10 years, like things have happened way faster than, than even they thought. Um, it's not just like everything in climate change is not prescriptive. Some things have happened slower, you know, like some things have happened faster. Um, but what we know unequivocally is that the more carbon we put in the atmosphere, uh, the worse things get. And that's why it's, this is not a black and white thing, right? Even if you can't stop the entire fossil fuel economy by 2050, uh, if you stop half of it, you have prevented a shit ton of suffering. Um, if you do nothing and let it go and let everything just keep going until 2050, you, you know, you have doubled, tripled, we don't even know the exponential amount of suffering that has happened. So it's a, it's, it's a real spectrum. I think it's important to remember that, you know, I heard someone, uh, I think it was former CIA director on MSNBC today saying like, wow, like we knew that maybe the Taliban could take uh, Afghanistan, but it happened way quicker than we thought. And I was just like, yeah, that's going to happen. Do you just have to act now? they knew it could happen faster, but yeah. anyway, yeah, no, that's, 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 that's the TV version of, uh, of events. But, um, yeah, I don't, Danny, do you have anything uh, else you wanted to, to ask? No, I, I guess I do have one question, but I feel like there might not be a real answer because it does seem like everything, uh, there are predictions and then it turns out that the, we're actually worse off. And I was curious, what's the, if there was an explanation for that, you know, it's always like, it'll get hotter at this rate and it always actually seems to get hotter quicker or that there's more extreme conditions. And I was just, if you could speak to that for a second, and if not, we could just cut out that question and we can. No, it's fine. Science is an inherently conservative field and that's what makes it so effective. Um, is that they are never going to overstate as an entire institution uh, what's going to happen. They will they will categorically understate so that they're never, you know, accused of exaggerating. Obviously, there'll be some studies that are like exaggerators, but that's the beauty of skepticism. Uh, and that's why it really pisses me off when people call climate deniers climate skeptics, because scientists are skeptics. They don't tell you something unless... They really, really have a lot of evidence and then a bunch of other people that they don't know have looked over it and picked up everything apart, right? It doesn't mean that science is infallible because nothing is infallible, but it does mean it's one of our most like trustworthy systems. Um, and especially in the realm of climate science, uh, it's why we should have been listening to them, right? Because science is awesome. Uh, 
And if we had listened, then we would probably be prepared for the fact that like, oh, it was a little worse than we thought. Well, good thing that we listened to the scientists because now we're not so far behind. Um, and, and I think it's actually, you know, I don't think it, I don't think it makes the scientists look bad at all that like generally they're a little conservative about it. I think it makes them look better. Um, and I think it just speaks to the strength of the, of the entire institution. Uh, do you worry, like there was a lot of talk after the, the IPCC report about, um, the dangers of climate defeatism and sort of throwing up your hands and saying, this is, uh, this is it. We're doomed. Uh, which I, I can, I can understand on some level. On the other hand, uh, I felt, you know, in the aftermath of that, like as, as people were talking about this, that the people who were saying, don't, don't be defeatist. Don't, don't feel like, don't be discouraged. Uh, were trying to get me to not pay attention to the severity of the problem and to minimize it. Uh, do you, uh, is, is climate defeatism something that you're worried about? Or do you feel like also that, that kind of gets wielded cynically to, to downplay the, the severity of the challenge? I'm worried about it, but probably not in the same way that you've seen like other people worry about it. Like I see a lot of people on the internet, Twitters be like, you know, like stop being so defeatist. Like that's so wrong and be really shame, like shaming people who are defeatist about this. It's like totally understandable why someone would be defeatist and depressed about this. Um, what I, I'm worried about is how like effect. So a lot of what I do is uh, look at the fossil fuel industry's PR strategies, how they try to get the blame off of them, how they try to shift blame, societal blame to like individuals, um, and how much money they put into spreading societal messaging, marketing, uh, advertising, lobbying, uh, electing officials, right? Um, and for 40 years, uh, at least, the prevailing strategy has been to make climate change an issue of the general public and not of them. So they say that it is a demand side issue and not a supply side issue. They are simply meeting the demands of the American public, of the global public. They're improving lives. And if they just change, well, then if, if we all change, then they'll change too, right? And that is why we have a defeatist mindset because we don't understand that that's a lie, that they're the problem. People who have a defeatist mindset who say we're fucked, it's generally because they're like, there's nothing we can do. Uh, there is something we can do. And they're like, the reason it's, it's decarbonize the energy sector. It's stop fossil fuels. It's engage in collective action to make systemic change and stop focusing on ourselves and each other. Right. And that was always, the fossil fuel industry's goal because they knew that if the American public knew very clearly from the start that it's a supply side problem, not a demand side problem, then we would engage in collective action to change the fossil fuel industry uh, and make it a clean energy industry and that they wouldn't have any money. So they need us to be blaming ourselves and each other. Uh, as long as we're distracted, they can keep going on destroying the world for profit and they'll be safe living in their big, you know, mansion on the top of a hill in Northern Michigan or wherever they decide is the climate safest place to live. Um, 
that would actually be a good journalism story. Just see where they're all buying houses. Uh, <laughs> yeah, West but, uh, Bloomfield you know, investigative report. It, that's what pisses me off about defeatism. Not that it exists, but that it was created. And that okay. it's not, and that like, yeah, of course people are falling victim to it. Sometimes like I find myself, I find myself feeling like, God, sometimes, but then I'm like, no, that's how they want me to feel. <laughs> because I mean, I won't go too much into this, but it's like there's a big concept in the fossil fuel industry called social license to operate. And that is the number one reason that you see fossil fuel ads everywhere is that they, it is a huge priority of these companies that they have public support to continue operating. If they lose it, because everyone knows that it's them that's causing climate change, it's you're actually going to see I think you're going to see the transition to the renewable energy economy pretty quickly because it's actually like a good like economy is way better. See, see that there we go. That's an up note. And I think that's an uh, up note. Good. That's a good place to end the interview there. So um, <laughs> Emily Akin, again, uh, the newsletter is heated, uh, heated.world. Uh, it's at Substack. Uh, go check it out. Subscribe. Sign up. Um, Emily, thank you again so much for uh, for coming on the show. And, um, you know, we'll uh, we'll be speaking to you again, I think, at some point. Great. I really hope someone from the fossil industry doesn't kill me. <laughs> Sometimes I say this stuff. I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, we, we hope so, too. So let's put that on the we'll put a little thing in the show description. Please do not oh, target me. <laughs> Emily, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate it. No problem.